Father, we thank you for the opportunity to be here at ASI. And Lord, we recognize that your work is continuing around the world, and we pray your blessing on every ministry that's represented here. But Lord, we also ask that you will open our minds to this thought, the message of Christ our righteousness, and the importance that it will play in the final scenes in earth's history. Lord, please uh, bless us today, open our ears to hear, and give me the words I pray to speak. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we're going to start with Martin Luther here, and a lot of what I'm quoting from you'll find in the Great Controversy or other uh, places where Ellen White talks about the Reformation. And so we're just going to uh, start, cover a little bit of the Reformation, and then come into Advent, Adventist history as well, and uh, see if we can carry this theme all the way through. Ellen White said in Great Controversy, she wrote this 1888 edition, there was a present truth in the days of Luther, a truth that time of special importance, at that time of special importance, there is a present truth for the church today, but truth is no more desired by the majority today than it was by the papists who opposed Luther. And you know, this uh, is really the great controversy. Um, it's Satan who wants to misrepresent God, and that's why the topic of righteousness by faith has always been a debated topic, and that's because the devil wants to stir up uh, strife and, and hatred and confusion. Uh, Desire of Ages, I was looking up for this quote uh, this morning, the principle that man can save himself by his own works lay at the foundation of every heathen religion. Wherever it is held, men have no barrier against sin. So where, when, wherever there is a religion or whenever we feel somehow that we have within us the power to save ourselves, there's no barrier against sin because we are incapable of overcoming that nature that all of us has. It has to be an outside source of power. And of course, this was the case in Luther's day. The, uh, Luther never meant to start a reformation against the church. He wanted just to reform the church itself. And of course, they, uh, there was an antagonism against his message because he was speaking against the mores that had lasted, that had been going on for you know, nearly, what, a thousand years in those dark ages. But notice here, um, Luther didn't come fully out of that darkness of the dark ages in that one generation, but he did, of course, present light and live up to the light that he understood. Unfortunately, now this is Norval Peace in a, a manuscript written in the 1940s. Unfortunately, Luther allowed or followed Augustine rather than Paul in his teaching of predestination, freedom of will, and kindred doctrines. The middle of the 16th century found, therefore, two dominant Protestant schools of thought in Europe, Lutheranism and Calvinism. Both were striving to emancipate thousands from the bondage of medieval Catholicism, and both were defending violently certain scriptural doctrines. Both systems, however, possessed glaring weaknesses. And so we have to recognize today, although we're not um, throwing stones at Luther or other reformers, they did not have all the light there is in the scripture, but they were moving away from the darkness there in the dark ages. This is what Ellen White says in regard to this topic. She says, the Reformation did not, as many suppose, end with Luther. 
It is to be continued to the close of this world's history. Luther had a great work to do in reflecting to others the light which God had permitted to shine upon him, yet he did not receive all the light which was to be given to the world. From that time to this, and she's speaking in 1888, a new light has been continually shining upon the scriptures and new truths have been constantly unfolding. And so, simply here put, it just means that Martin Luther was a great reformer, but he did not have all the light there was to find in the scriptures. But not only that, there was a tendency to not want to move beyond the reformer. And this is often the case. Now, there, these are principles that we should learn today because sometimes we're slow to move ahead uh, beyond our fathers, so, so to speak. John Robinson, uh, who was a pilgrim in 15, uh, about the 1600s, um, Ellen White quotes him in Great Controversy, and this is what he said, I cannot sufficiently bewail the condition of the Reformed churches who are come to a period in religion and will go no farther than the instruments of their reformation. The Lutherans cannot be drawn to go any farther than what Luther saw, and the Calvinist, you see, stick fast where they were left by the great man of God who yet saw not all things. So again, here's that principle of failing to move beyond the original reformer. And so a new generation arises and doesn't want to go any farther in the study or advancing of truth. Not only that, but there's times when uh, that which the future or past generation taught, the new generation forgets, and they fall back into darkness. And this also happened in the years following Martin Luther by the time of the Wesleys. Notice what uh, Ellen White says. The great doctrine of justification by faith, so clearly taught by Luther, had been almost wholly lost sight of, and the Romish principle of trusting to good works for salvation had taken its place. And she's speaking of the time in the 1700s when uh, Charles and John Wesley came on the scene. Whitfield and the Wesleys, who were members of the established church, were sincere seekers for the favor of God. And this, they had been taught, was to be secured by a virtuous life and an observance of the ordinances of religion. So again, they had fallen back, not completely, but into this idea that somehow man, in order to gain favor of God, had to do certain things, uh, particularly through the church, to gain God's favor. Uh, John Wesley had an, a conversion experience in uh, 1738 where he was reading Luther's material and he realized that his understanding was not where it should be. And this is how Ellen White describes that event in um, Great Controversy. Through long years of wearisome and comfortless striving, years of rigorous self-denial and reproach and humiliation, Wesley had steadfastly adhered to his one purpose of seeking God. Now he had found him, and he found that grace which he had toiled to win by prayers and fasts, by alms deeds and self-abnegation, was a gift without money and without price. And it's interesting, John Wesley even repeats the words of Luther in his own conversion experience. He's, he talks about his heart, how his heart was strangely warmed as he read Luther's wor works. 
Elmite continues here describing Wesley's experience. She says, once established in the faith of Christ, his whole soul burned with the desire to spread everywhere a knowledge of the glorious gospel of God's free grace. He continued his strict and self-denying life, but notice, not now the ground as the ground, but the result of faith, not the root, but the fruit of holiness. The grace of God in Christ is the foundation of the Christian hope, and that grace will be manifest in obedience. Wesley's life was devoted to the preaching of the great truths which he had received. Notice there's two here, justification through faith in the atoning blood of Christ and the renewing power of the Holy Spirit upon the heart, bringing forth fruit in a life conformed to the example of Christ. So Wesley didn't just you know, throw living to the wind, but now he was motivated by a much higher motivation, and that was because of God's free grace and forgiveness in his life, he now wanted to tell the world even more so than he had before. Well, Ellen White kind of summarizes this idea of the Reformation, that it describes it as the building of a temple. So all of these reformers, down to our very day, we are building on this temple, uh, as she describes it. The enemy of righteousness left nothing undone in his effort to stop the work committed to the Lord's builders. And she's writing this in uh, Acts and the Apostles. Like the apostles, many of them fell at their post, but the building of the temple went steadily forward. The Waldenses, John Wycliffe, Huss, Jerome, Martin Luther, Zwingli, Cranmer, Latimer, Knox, the Huguenots, John and Charles Wesley, and a host of others brought to the foundation material that will endure throughout eternity. So notice that there's been a foundation built, but if all you have is a foundation... Um, that's what you have, a foundation, but there's a building to be built on this foundation. She continues, and in later years, those who by their service in heathen lands have prepared the way for the proclamation of the last great message, these also have helped to rear the structure. Through the ages that have passed since the days of the apostles, the building of God's temple has never ceased. So God is building this temple, and someday that temple, so to speak, is going to be finished, and that will be in the culmination of his return and the end of this whole great controversy. But what about uh, Adventism or the Seventh-day Adventist uh, movement, and how has this Reformation continued in our church? So I want to take a, a, a look here at um, the Advent movement, and you're very familiar with this statement. Elamite wrote this in 1892. And she was specifically talking about organization at the time, but this statement applies, I think, in a much broader sense than just organization. She says, we have nothing to fear for the future except as we forget the way the Lord has led us and his teaching in our past history. So as Adventists, like the Reformers, if we fail to teach the next generation how God has led us in the past, they may fall back into Errors of days gone by, unless we keep that history fresh in our minds. So what about the uh, Advent movement? Of course, William Miller uh, began to preach in 1833. There was others who joined him in this worldwide movement of proclaiming the soon coming of Christ. And this was then described by the Advent believers in the United States as the first angel's message, really, which drove this um, 
impetus to uh, share this message around the world. And this is how Ellen White describes it. Notice how she compares it with the Reformation. The first angel's message was carried to every missionary station in the world, and in some countries there was the greatest religious interest which has been witnessed in any land since the Reformation of the 16th century. But these are to be far exceeded by the mighty movement under the last warning of the third angel. So that Reformation, which began back in the middle of the Dark Ages there, was to continue to the very end of time. And Ellen White describes that early Advent movement with the Millerite movement as uh, uh, having interest or creating interest as great as um, that Reformation back in the 16th century. Notice how she goes on to talk about this early Advent movement. A great religious awakening under the proclamation of Christ's soon coming is foretold in the prophecy of the first angel's message of Revelation 14. The message is declared to be a part of the everlasting gospel, and it announces the opening of the judgment. So she's talking about, uh, in the book of Revelation, the three angels' messages here. The message of salvation has been preached in all ages, but this message, the judgment hour message, is a part of the gospel which could be proclaimed only in these last days. For only then would it be true that the hour of judgment had come. So here she's saying that there's a part of the Reformation message which was never given in Luther's day because it was not applicable to his time, but it was or is in the 1840s and on. She continues, the prophecies present a succession of events leading down to the opening of the judgment. This is especially true of the book of Daniel, but that part of his prophecy which related to the last days, Daniel was bidden to close up and seal to the time of the end. And she's speaking of Daniel's particularly uh, 8 and 9. Not till we reach the time, this time, could a message concerning the judgment be proclaimed based on a fulfillment of these prophecies. The coming of Christ could not take place before that time. No such message has ever been given in past ages. Paul, as we have seen, did not preach it. He pointed his brethren into the far distant future for the coming of the Lord. The reformers did not proclaim it. Martin Luther placed the judgment about 300 years in the future from his day. So again, just this, I put this quote in here just to, to show us or remind us that the Reformation didn't end with Martin Luther, that there was more to that message uh, than he could proclaim because the hour of God's judgment had not come until the 1840s. In 1889, Ellen White described then some of the landmark teachings of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And of course, this came about after the Great Disappointment in 1844, and there was Bible conferences in the late 1840s and, and 1850s where Adventists uh, sat down together, Second Adventist, Sabbath-keeping Adventists, and they studied the Bible and sought out the truths that um, had been hidden for years. And this is how Ellen White defines or summarizes those truths that were discovered there in the 1840s and 50s. The passing of time in 1844 was a period of great events, opening to our astonished eyes the cleansing of the sanctuary, transpiring in heaven, and having decided relation to God's people upon the earth. Also, the first and second angel's messages and the third unfurling the banner on which was inscribed the commandments of God, 
and the faith of Jesus. And so, of course, this was the text that uh, Adventists saw as applying to uh, describing them as the commandment keepers of God and having the faith of Jesus. The light of the Sabbath of the fourth commandment flashed its strong rays in the pathways of the transgressors of God's law. The non-immortality of the wicked is an old landmark. And so to kind of summarize, these are kind of the list of those landmarks that that Ellen White is describing in 1889 is kind of the basic landmarks that Seventh-day Adventists or Sabbath-keeping Adventists studied out there in the 40s and 50s. But they also came to understand other aspects of biblical truth, including the whole idea of the great controversy in a greater way than had been seen before. Their study of Daniel and Revelation brought them to understand more about the mark of the beast, the seal of God, time of trouble, and uh, the latter rain and the loud cry. All of these were themes that early Adventists studied out and learned. But God didn't stop there. He realized that there was a movement that needed an avenue in which to take the messages that they had studied out in the scriptures to the world. And so through organization uh, and Many branches of the work, the ministry, evangelism, missionary work, health and temperance, sanitariums, medical missionary work, publishing and all of its aspects, and education. Through all of these branches of work, it was God's intent that this web of truth be broadcast to the world. And of course, all of these branches of work were to work in unity under the same message, not all doing the same thing, but working together to proclaim the, the final message to the world. But as you know, by, by 1852, the Laodicean message, which Adventists, uh, Sabbath-keeping Adventists, had always applied to other Protestant churches, there was a realization that that condition had, was really describing Sabbath-keeping Adventists as well, if not specifically. And notice this article, the first time that Ellen White wrote about this Laodicean condition, 1852, she says, As I have of late looked around to find the humble followers of the meek and lowly Jesus, my mind has been much exercised. Many who profess to be looking for the speedy coming of Christ are becoming conformed to this world and seek more earnestly the applause of those around them than the approbation of God. They are cold and formal, like the nominal churches that they but a short time since separated from. The words addressed to the Laodicean church describe their present condition perfectly. And then she quotes, of course, Revelation 3, 14 to 20. So by 1852, Ellen White made it clear, and others were writing on this as well in the review, that as a people, we had fallen into a Laodicean condition, a similar um, condition that happened in the days of the reformers where um, failing to follow on in the truth and live by those truths, they, uh, their experience began to fade away. Well, of course, uh, Revelation 3.14 describes this condition and we're all familiar with that. There's a difference of opinion between what God sees and how we describe ourselves or how the, the, the pioneers, since we're speaking in that time period, how they describe themselves. And the key phrase is there, thou knowest not. Well, how, how would that condition, by the way, affect the, the, church, the branches of the work? 
would it not affect them all? And particularly, at the bottom there, you notice disunity is ultimately the result. So when we're not all uh, familiar, or the, the church at the time, uh, the Advent movement at the time, were suffering under this Laodicean condition, there tended to be s strife and disunity in all of these branches of the work, not working together in the same uh, message to be given to the world. Well, thank God, uh, there's remedies offered. And Revelation 3 doesn't just end with a description of the condition of God's people at that time. And by the way, speaking of our time as well, God has divine remedies. And they are described as gold and white raiment and eye salve, which he offers to us. Now notice how Ellen White described this Laodicean message. The Laodicean message has been sounding. Take this message in all its phases and sound it forth to the people wherever providence opens the way. Justification by faith and the righteousness of Christ are the themes to be presented to a perishing world. So at the very core, at the very heart of the Laodicean message or the remedies which God is offering is this message of righteousness by faith. And that message also should go to the world. Now, I would ask the same question. Will those remedies affect or will they bring healing to every branch of the work in God's church? And I say, yes, they will. Every area. Now, by 1883, this is now the time of a second generation of Adventists coming on the scene. Ellen White describes the fact that because this message had not been accepted or taken to heart, the Laodicean message and the remedies, that a delay of Christ's coming had occurred. She says this in 1883, had Adventists, after the great disappointment in 1844, held fast their faith and followed on unitedly in the opening providences of God, receiving the message of the third angel in the power of the Holy Spirit, proclaiming it to the world, they would have seen the salvation of God. The Lord would have wrought mightily with their efforts. The work would have been completed, and Christ would have come ere this to receive his people to their reward. For 40 years did unbelief, murmuring, rebellion shut out the ancient Israel from the land of Canaan. The same sins have delayed the entrance of modern Israel into the heavenly Canaan. And then notice what she says, in neither case were the promises of God at fault. It is the unbelief, the worldliness, and unconsecration and strife among the Lord's professed people that have kept us in this world of sin and sorrow so many years. So here we are, almost 40 years, 1883, almost 40 years after the 1844 experience, and Ellen White is comparing that situation then with the situation of Israel coming out of Egypt on the way to Canaan. Well, let's ask how it is that Adventism at that time could fall away from the message that God had given them. And why was this Laodicean condition continuing even into the second generation? So let's go back to this statement Ellen White made in 1889, where she talks about the foundational landmarks that were studied out. And the very last one there here says the Third angel's message, which unfurled the banner on which was inscribed the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. And it's here in this third angel's message that we really find, once again, 
that message of righteousness by faith, which is to be uh, a prominent part of the Advent message. Notice what Ellen White says here in November of 1888. The third angel's message is the proclamation of the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. The commandments of God have been proclaimed, but the faith of Jesus Christ has not been proclaimed by Seventh-day Adventists as of equal importance, the law and the gospel going hand in hand. So there obviously was an imbalance there where the commandments of God were being presented, but the faith of Jesus was being left aside. The faith of Jesus is talked of, but not understood, she says. What constitutes the faith of Jesus that belongs to the third angel's message? Jesus becoming our sin bearer, bearer that he might become our sin-pardoning Savior. He, has treated, uh, he was treated as we deserve to be treated. He came to our world and took our sins that we might take his righteousness. Faith in the ability of Christ to save us amply and fully and entirely is the faith of Jesus. So here is she saying that that part of the three angels' message, this is the gospel, and that is to be part of in part with the law of God, the message that is to go to the world. So the question is, you know, how could this come about, the situation come about where um, the faith of Jesus was lost sight of in the 1880s? And I think there's, of course, many uh, obvious answers. Of course, the, the first one would be the Laodicean condition. And, and the very remedies offered to the Laodiceans describe the fact that they do not have Christ's righteousness, at least in an experiential sense. Pride in being part of the remnant church. Now, I'm not in any way saying here that we should disdain the idea of the remnant church. There are some that are kind of pushing that idea aside. But what I'm saying here is that there's a, a, a human condition in which we naturally become proud of our heritage. The Jews did it because they were the seed of Abraham, and uh, they thought somehow that you know, got them a higher place in God's eyes, and it was an issue of pride. And of course, it can be an issue, and it was, I believe, in the 1800s, where there was kind of a pride in the idea that they were the remnant church. An overreaction to the opposition against the Ten Commandments and the Sabbath. So as people, uh, Protestant churches rose up and said, you know, the, the law has been done away with, in, <coughs> excuse me, in responding to that, <coughs> there was a, uh, a, a tendency to um, overemphasize the Ten Commandments and put, play, put aside the uh, gospel. An imbalance began to take place there as they reacted to opposition. Sometimes the pendulum swings. A debating style of evangelism and preaching. And this, of course, you probably all heard about. A, an evangelist would show up in a town and he would challenge one of the pastors, local pastors, to a debate. And then, based on his knowledge of Scripture, you know, they would. Uh, kind of annihilate the, the local pastor and take some of his uh, members. And, of course, this caused strife and Pharisaism and, and all that results from that. And then a false understanding that most converts come from other Christian churches, therefore they already understand righteousness by faith. <clears throat> and I think this is a danger we can have even today, the idea that because other churches believe in salvation, therefore that's a subject we don't need to dwell on. But, you know... There's a lot of ideas out there about the plan of salvation. I mean, just, you know, Calvinism, universalism. I mean, just in general, 
just like other teachings that have air mixed in them, uh, so is even the, 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 uh, the doctrine of salvation in other churches' understanding. So it's a, to- a topic that needs to be preached about with everybody. A failure to realize that righteousness by faith is a key component to our last day message. And this, I think, Ellen White was over and over again trying to emphasize. A failure to realize the uniqueness of Adventism's biblical understanding of righteousness by faith. I don't think we can fully understand righteousness by faith aside from the idea of the whole great controversy. Aside from the idea of the sanctuary and how the sanctuary service in the Old Testament is a depiction of the whole plan of salvation. And it's only through understanding that that we have a full idea of how God wants to eradicate sin forever, not only on this planet, but in the whole universe. Well, I'm just going to give a couple examples of what the result of this condition had during this time period. And I, don't, I can't go into this with any detail, but there are several situations that came up during these years that kind of lead us to understand how the gospel or righteousness by faith was kind of put on the back burner. One of them was in 1854. There was a series of articles in the Adventist Review titled The Leading Doctrines of Adventism. And so there were several weeks where they would have another uh, set of uh, another doctrine that was talked about. And there was nothing in there about righteousness by faith or the plan of salvation in a specific sense. In 1872, there was a book put out. This would be similar to our 28 fundamental beliefs or our book, you know, on the 27 fundamental beliefs. This was called a Declaration of the Fundamental Principles Taught and Practiced by Seventh-day Adventists. And in the entire book, which had 25 articles of faith, there was very little said on the plan of salvation. Then in uh, 1877, Uriah Smith and James White both did a series of lectures on the principal doctrines of Seventh-day Adventists in that summer of uh, 1877. And then it was, those uh, talks were published in a book. And as you go through that entire book, there's very little that was said about the salvation or righteousness by faith. Now, what they did say was true. I'm not in any way um, decrying that. But this is just an example of what happened as a result of putting aside or putting uh, as of less importance the subject of righteousness by faith, although the law and other things were um, held up. And this is what Ellen White described, and and you can find many statements that she makes like this. I, I had several slides, I only kept this one. She said, on the one hand, the religionists generally have divorced the law and the gospel, while we, on the other hand, have almost done the same from another standpoint. We have not held up before the people the righteousness of Christ and the full significance of his great plan of redemption. We have left out Christ and his matchless love and brought in theories and reasonings and preached arguments. She's writing this, by the way, in 1889. Unconverted men have stood in the pulpit sermonizing with their their own hearts have never experienced the sweet evidence through a living, clinging, trusting faith of the forgiveness of their sins. How can they preach the love, the sympathy, the forgiveness of God for all their sins? In other words, if we don't have an experience of ourselves in righteousness by faith and know what that means, how can we say, share that with others and with the world? Well, a change began to take place in the early 1880s, and I, I want to show you at least a little glimpse here of, of how I think this came about. 
1873, uh, Dr. M.G. Kellogg, he was a relative of John Harvey Kellogg, he had a, um, a picture or a chart made. It was actually fairly small. And then he would, they printed that off, and the evangelists would use this for uh, teaching a tool as they did their evangelistic series. And so this particular one was called the Way of Life. And in it, you'll see there's a, a law tree with the Ten Commandments, and then there's the old sacrificial system there on the left, and that's the shadow, and then you have the Lord's Supper and baptism there in the new. You can see the cross there. And then there's a little pathway that kind of heads through the woods there. It's difficult to see where it goes, but it, it ends up there in the kingdom. Well, in, in 1876, uh, James White decided to make a revision of this um, uh, uh, picture, evangelistic tool, and so this is the way of life in 1876, um, from paradise lost to paradise restored, and, and the same idea, evangelists would use this, and then there would be a little booklet that would go along with it that would explain the different parts of the picture, but you notice here the all-seeing eye was taken out, the pathway to heaven is not quite as, um, uh, it's more open and so forth. And this is what James White actually um, would make, an, I'm sorry, he would make another change then in 1880, where this one was called Christ, the way of life. And notice the difference with this picture. It's still the idea of the shadow in the Old Testament there and the new, but you notice what's the central part of the picture. And so James White had this to say in 1880 as he was... Uh, writing to Ellen White, he says, I have a sketch also of the new picture. Behold the Lamb of God. This differs from the 1876 way of life in these particulars. The law tree is removed. Christ on the cross is made large and placed in the center. So here in 1881, James White clearly is expressing in this evangelistic tool a change that took place in his own life. And I want to ask, or we want to see why that was. What had happened? Why was there this change in his mind? And notice what he says. This is in an article that spring of 1881. He says, Blessed, said our Lord, are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. And he's quoting from Matthew 5, 6. With some, there is an unutterable yearning of soul for Christ, and the writer is one of this class. With some of us, it has been business, work, care, giving Christ but little room in the mind and in the affections. With others, it has been nearly all theory, dwelling upon the law and the prophets, the nature and destiny of man and the messages, talking about the first and second and third angels' message, while destitute to an alarming degree, of an indwelling Christ. So it's possible to be caught up, be very busy in work and still be um, destitute of an indwelling Christ. Our preachers, uh, James White continued, need more encouragement. They should preach Christ more and they should know more of him upon whom all our hopes of success here and of heaven hereafter depend. So here James White has come to a time in his life and he's realizing that even in his own life, Christ has not had that dwelling place in him as it should, and he's sensing a need for something more. 
One, another uh, preacher that was traveling with James White in that spring uh, wrote this about him, James White. He said, during the last few months, I was with James White about eight weeks so that I have had the best opportunities to know him thoroughly. He often said to me privately and also spoke of it over and over in nearly all his sermons this spring and summer that he felt he must be more tender toward his brethren, more compassionate toward the erring, and that he must cultivate more love for Christ and more patience in his trials. As all will remember, wherever he preached, James White preached, the past few months, he dwelt largely upon faith in Christ and the boundless love of God. So James White didn't set aside all the Adventist truths and doctrines, but he began to lift up Christ more. And notice what it did to his own experience. He became more tender. He realized that others needed Christ more. In fact, this spilled over even into his own marriage. I took the slide out, um, but there, I had a couple slides where even his relationship with Ellen White changed in the spring of 1881 as he came to her and apologized for the things he had said in the past that had been hurtful to her. And so there was a renewal of their consecration to one another in the spring of 81, and this was all the result of James White's desire to see Christ lifted up more in his own life and in the church. Well, that desire went even farther than just seeing a need in his own life. He decided that in the spring of 81 that, that uh, they needed to move. And notice what Ellen White writes here. In the spring and early summer of 81, we spent together at our home in Battle Creek. My husband hoped to arrange his business so that we could go to the Pacific Coast and devote our, ourselves to writing. He felt we had made a mistake in allowing the apparent wants of the cause and the entreaties of our brethren urged us into active labor and preaching when we should have been writing. And then notice what he says. She says, My husband desired to present more fully the glorious subject of redemption, and I had long contemplated the preparation of important books. So here Ellen White is saying, we, James and I decided we need to be writing more, and specifically on this subject of, the, of redemption. So here they are, 1881, and they decided we need to go to the Pacific coast, get away from all the, the, the trials of being here at the center of the work, and God was urging them to do this. Well, at the last minute, um, James White kind of had a change of plan. Then notice what Ellen White says. She says, I urged upon him the importance of seeking a field of labor where we would be released from the burdens necessarily coming upon us at Battle Creek. In reply, he spoke of various matters which required attention before we could leave, duties which someone must do. So James White too many things going on, I can't leave quite yet. With tears, he expressed his anxiety for our institutions at Battle Creek. Said he, my life has been given to the upholding of these institutions. It seems like death to leave them. I would rather die than leave to see these institutions mismanaged or turn aside from the purpose for which they were brought into existence. So James White, when it really came down to it, he couldn't let go. Here he had this impression, I need to be writing more on this subject of redemption. Our pastors need it. That's where my work needs to go. But he couldn't leave the heart of the work. And he got to the point where he said, I'd rather die than leave Battle Creek. And two weeks later, he was dead. He caught a cold right after this and turned into pneumonia. And two weeks later, the Lord laid him to rest. Now, that's not a reflection, I don't think, on James White's eternal destiny. I'm not saying that. But the Lord knew. He had laid a burden on him. He wasn't ready. So the Lord moved on. 
Notice this is very interesting. Ellen White had a dream a couple weeks later. James White is dead. And she has a dream. And in her dream, James White is talking to her. And he's saying this in her dream. We have made a mistake. We have responded to urgent invitations of our brethren to attend important meetings. We have not the heart to refuse. These meetings have worn us both more than we were aware. We might have done a great deal for years with our pens. And this is James White again in a dream talking to Ellen. On the subjects people need that we have had light upon and can present before them which others do not have. And I would submit to you that James White in this dream is talking about that emphasis on redemption and righteousness by faith. Thus can you work when your strength returns, he's telling Ellen, as it will, and you can do far more with your pen than with your voice. We ought to have gone to the Pacific Coast before and devoted our time and energies to writing. Will you do this now? Will you, as your strength returns, take your pen and write out these things we have so long anticipated? And make haste slowly. There is important matter which the people need. And based on the context of James White's last few year of life, I believe he's specifically saying we need to lift up Christ more in the message of righteousness by faith. Well, it's interesting because Ellen White, a couple years later, looks back to the death of her husband, and this is what she says. When I sat with my hand, the hand of my dying husband in my own, I knew that God was at work. While I sat there on the bed by his side, he in such feverishness, it was there like a clear chain of light presented before me. The workmen are buried, but the work shall go on. I have workmen that shall take hold of this work. Fear not, be not discouraged, it shall go forward. It was there that I understood that I was to take the work and the burden stronger than I ever borne before. It was there that I promised the Lord that I would stand by my post of duty to do as far as possible the work that God had given me to do. With the understanding, notice, that God was to bring in an element in this work that we have not had yet. So here, even at the sight of her dying husband, God is promising her, I will lay down one, but I will raise up others and specifically with a message that we have not yet had. Again, I feel like this is right in the, tr in the train of those events that were happening in 1881 in James White's life. Well, Ellen White uh, relocated to Hillsburg, California after James White died. She moved in with her son in, uh, for a short while in Oakland and then found uh, her own home in Hillsburg. But in the summer of 1882, she became very sick and uh, she went to the sanitarium for about a week there in hopes of, of getting well. And after about a week's time, she decided it really wasn't helping her. And she came to the point where she really felt like she as well would pass on to the grave uh, with her husband. And in the uh, late summer, October of 1882, there was a camp meeting there in Hillsburg. And Ellen White asked, uh, before she died, if she couldn't be taken out to this camp meeting. And so she was put into the back of this buggy, and they took her out on that first Sabbath, October 7, to hear the meetings there at the Hillsburg camp meeting. And this is what she says. Sabbath forenoon, she was very feeble, hardly able to leave her bed. But at noon, she said, prepare me a place in the large tent where I can hear the speaker. Possibly the sound of the speaker's voice will prove a blessing to me. I am hoping for something to bring new life. 
So Ellen White actually had a, a couch brought up close to the front of the tent there where she could sit and listen to that Sabbath sermon. And interestingly enough, the, the preacher's topic that day was on Adventist history and how God had led from 1844 to the present time in 1882. And I wonder if that didn't revive her as she saw the way God had worked in the past, how he had blessed this movement. Well, notice what happens. Right after the sermon, she asked if a couple men could help her up to the podium, and she wanted to share her last words to the audience there or the congregation before she died. She figured this would be the last time she would speak. And this is how it was reported. After she had spoken a few sentences, there was a change in her voice and attitude. She felt a thrill of healing power as she proceeded with her address. Her strength was manifest. She stood firmly and did not need to hold on to the desk for support. The large congregation witnessed the healing. All noticed the change in her voice, and many observed the change in her countenance. They saw the sudden transition from a death-like paleness to the flush of health, as the natural colors were seen. One of the non-SDA businessmen of Hillsburg exclaimed, a miracle is wrought in sight of this whole congregation. So here's Ellen White. She's basically saying, this is the last time I'm going to speak before I die. She stands up to speak, and as she's talking, giving her final address, the Lord heals her. Well, as often is the case, if God heals you, then he's got to put you to work, right? So they asked Ellen White, can you stay at the camp meeting? And she spoke uh, five times more while she was there. And on the last uh, Sabbath of the camp meeting, one week later, October 14, it was a rainy, foggy uh, Sabbath afternoon, and Ellen White preached on the subject of the gospel of his grace. That was her topic. And sitting in the back of that tent on that October 14 day was um, a young man, 27 years old, and this is what he writes about his experience that day as Ellen White preached in, the, in Hillsburg, California. Many years ago, the writer sat in a tent one dismal rainy afternoon where a servant of the Lord was presenting the gospel of his grace. In the midst of that discourse, an experience came to me that was the turning point in my life. Suddenly a light shone about me, and the tent seemed illumined as though the sun were shining. I saw Christ crucified for me, and to me was revealed for the first time in my life the fact that God loved me, and that Christ gave himself for me personally, and it was all for me. I knew that this light that came to me was a revelation direct from heaven, Therefore, I knew in the Bible I should find the message of God's love for individual sinners, and I resolved that the rest of my life should be devoted to finding it there and making it plain to others. And make, uh, the light that shone upon me that day from the cross of Christ has been my guide in all my Bible study. Wherever I have turned in the sacred book, I have found Christ set forth as the power of God to salvation of individuals, and I have never found anything else. And some of you already know, but that young man who sat in the back of the tent on that rainy afternoon, October day, was Elliot Wagner. He was actually the, uh, the um, what do they call it? He ran the sanitarium. So he was the president of the 
sanitarium there in Elmshaven, or above Elmshaven there. And uh, within a year, he retired from his job as a physician after this experience and joined with uh, A.T. Jones, became editor of the signs. He was pastor of Oakland. Uh, Jones was pastor of San Francisco Church. They began teaching at the college. And together, although they never sat down and studied together, they began to present this message on their heart that was lifting up Christ and his righteousness in all the truths of Adventism. And notice what happened in 1888 when they presented at Minneapolis and Ellen White was there, heard them for the first time. This is what she said. When Brother Wagner brought out these ideas in Minneapolis, it was the first clear teaching on this subject from any human lips I had heard, excepting, notice, the conversations between myself and my husband. What's she talking about? 1881, before he died, when they were talking about this theme that needed to come to us as a church. It is because God has presented it to me in vision that I see it so clearly, and they cannot see it. She's talking about the brethren there at Minneapolis who were resisting this light because they have never had it presented to them as I have. And when another presented it, every fiber of my heart said, Amen. And this is exactly what happened at Minneapolis. The reason Ellen White knew was because she'd heard this. She had been discussing this before with her husband six years before, seven years before. Her husband had died and God had promised, I will raise up others that will have this same burden. And she recognized the fulfillment of that at Minneapolis. Well, she would say this. There's much more that could be said, but... She said this, God raised up these men to proclaim the truth. I say yes, or the question, has God raised up these men to proclaim the truth? I say yes, God has sent men to bring us the truth that we should not have had unless God sent somebody to bring it to us. And again, she's referring to the fact, the promise that God had made her, yes, your husband is being laid to rest, but I will raise up others. God will... God will ever give them to know he has given these men, Jones and Wagner, a work to do and a message to bear, which is present truth for this time. They knew that wherever this message comes, its fruits are good. Now, this is just quickly, I want to show you this slide. Some have said that, you know, Ellen White never preached or the church didn't preach on righteousness by faith before 1888. And that really is not true. But you'll notice the use of words pre-1880 and post-1880. Now, some of that has to do with the fact that she wrote much more after 1880s, but still, you notice that the emphasis clearly uh, increases on the subject of righteousness by faith. And, of course, Desire of Ages, Christ's Object Lessons, Steps to Christ, and other Hallmark books were published after this um, message came to us as a people. Righteousness by faith, God's message for a dying world. Now notice that different terms that we use to describe righteousness by faith, and I think sometimes it's so simple we forget how big of a part the message of righteousness by faith is to us as a people. It's in the Laodicean message, we talk about that. It's the heart of the third angel's message. 
It's, um, of course, we, justification, righteousness, my faith, the righteousness of Christ, the message of Revelation 18.1, the fourth angel, loud cry in the latter rain. All of these things are talking about the same subject and the 18.8 message or the most precious message. So just notice quickly some of these statements Ellen White made in that, those years following Minneapolis. The message given us by Jones and Wagner is the message of God to the Laodicean church. So there she clearly ties those two together. The Laodicean message has been sounding. Take this message in all its phases and sound it forth to the people wherever providence opens the way. Justification by faith and the righteousness of Christ are the themes to be presented to a perishing world. Oh, that you may open the door of your heart to Jesus. So, you know, it's not just a message for us as a people. It's a message to go to the world. Another statement she made, 1890, several have written to me inquiring if the message of justification by faith is the third angel's message. I have answered, it's the third angel's message in verity or truth. So again, you notice how these all tie together. And then in 1895, Ellen White makes this statement where she kind of summarizes this, these years, seven years that have gone prior to this. The Lord in his great mercy sent a most precious message to his people through elders Wagner and Jones. This message was to bring more prominently before the world the uplifted Savior, the sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. And then notice, it presented justification through faith in the surety. It invited the people to receive the righteousness of Christ, which is made manifest in obedience to all the commandments of God. That's the only way righteousness can come. We can never produce a righteousness in our lives without Christ's righteousness dwelling in us. This is the message that God commanded to be given to the world. It is the third angel's message, which is to be proclaimed with a loud voice and attended with the outpouring of the Spirit in a large measure. So here in this statement, I mean, she just summarizes all of those concepts into one uh, paragraph. But here's kind of the, the crux of the thing. Here's another statement Ellen White made in uh, 1896. What is justification by faith? It is the work of God in laying the glory of man in the dust and doing for man that which it is not in his power to do for himself. When men see their own nothingness, they are prepared to be clothed with the righteousness of Christ. And there's where the rub is, really. It's been the rub since uh, Martin Luther. Because sinful self doesn't like being laid in the dust where it really belongs. We want to think that we're pretty good after all. And we'll take some of Jesus, but not all that Jesus has to offer. So here's where the rub comes in. Well, here's another statement Ellen White made in 1892. You've all probably heard this, November 22, where she describes that this very message in 1892 was the beginning of the loud cry. The time of test is just upon us, she says, for the loud cry of the third angel has already begun in the revelation of the righteousness of Christ, the sin-pardoning redeemer. This is the beginning of the light of the angel whose glory shall fill the whole earth. And what, where is she quoting that from? The angel that will, glory will fill the whole earth? Revelation 18.1. So she's saying this is that very light. This is that light of that angel which shall join and fill the whole earth. November 22, 1892. Now, there's a very interesting article that followed uh, her statement in the review. 
by W.A. Colcord. He was the uh, General Conference Secretary, and he asked a really important question of that time, and I think it's a question for us to ponder as well. He says, why did the loud cry begin with a work for us rather than with a work from us? Do you understand his question? Why, why did the loud cry begin as a work for us? Why did it begin with the revelation of the righteousness of Christ, the sin-pardoning Redeemer, among us, as stated by Sister White in her review of November 22, 1892, rather than with the cry from us to the world of the fall of Babylon? So here's his answer. An answer to these questions may be of interest, but the answer is easy. The Lord saw that we ourselves needed a fitting up before we were prepared to do the work he designed us to do. He saw that we needed to know what the gospel, the power of God unto salvation, is indeed before we could preach the everlasting gospel in power and demonstration of the Spirit to others. And then he continues, and to know and to be able to tell from personal possession what it was that the churches had lost before we could tell the world the cause of their fall. Why has Babylon fallen, really, at its core? It's because it has turned aside from the only righteousness there is in Christ to a righteousness that can be produced through sacraments and human merit. That's really the underlying cause of Babylon's fall. How can we go to Babylon and say, Thou art fallen? if we don't know where they've fallen from and where the answer lies personally by personal possession. He saw that as a people we had not yet the mind in us, which was in Christ Jesus, that there was still selfishness in us and a looking to self for righteousness and in self for goodness, which was not there at all. So W. Colcart is saying, why did God send a message to us first, the loud cry to us? It was so that we personally would be prepared with a personal experience before we went out to the world. And I say that's still present truth today. Well, how far-reaching was the impact of this most precious message to be? And I wish we could spend time just on this one slide. But I believe that this message, and there's evidence, that God intended that this righteousness by faith message would influence every branch of work in the church, and you can see evidence of it in the 1890s. Education was to be built on the foundation of righteousness by faith, and and the whole focus of ministry coming out of education was for the purpose of fitting up people to take this message to the world. Um, Publishing, health, and temperance, and so forth. And in fact, I didn't have time to talk more about it, but... Sutherland and McGann, who started Madison College, there's a book out, um, Madison, God's Beautiful Farm, and in that book you will see over a dozen times where reference is made to the impact that the message of righteousness by faith, which came to the church at that time in Minneapolis and following, impacted them so much that it affected the way they did ministry. It affected the way they wanted to see education, and it led them, in part, to the developing of Madison College, which, by the way, ASI has its roots in Madison College. So if you didn't know that, there's a book to pick up 
uh, while you're here um, this weekend. Well, we're going to end with this idea. Two rivers of thought flowing out from 1880 era. Now, I don't want to be controversial, but I suppose you can't really talk about these things without perhaps touching on controversial things. But there are really two th ideas, at least two, but I believe there's two main ideas that have flown out of, of 1888 in regard to the message of righteousness by faith. The one idea is that Adventist's message is really no different than just evangelical gospel, and that's what needs to go to the world. And that's also that idea is then read back into our history, even rewriting our history to fit that idea. The other thought is that God, we're not better than anybody, but God raised up this church to allow the full light of scriptures to be fully opened up in the plan of salvation. And that is the message that needs to go to the world. So I'm going to start with the one view. And rather than beating around the bush, and so you don't know what I'm talking about, I'm just going to be forthright. So <clears throat> maybe I needed to sign a disclaimer that anything I say that doesn't represent ASI, you know, is, uh, I don't want to be misrepresenting ASI, but I think I'm okay here. Because I want us to know that we're dealing with confusion in our church today, and there's a reason why. And this confusion probably primarily has been around since the 1950s. So notice this, in uh, 1978, Desmond Ford asks a question in uh, Australian Signs of the Times. Some have, or there's a question asked of him. Some have affirmed that the theology of preachers Wagner and Jones of the 19th century was an advance upon Reformation theology. Do you agree? And this was his answer. Preachers Wagner and Jones at the famous Minneapolis Conference of 1888 had the first gleaning of light which irradiated the Roman world in the first century Europe in the 16th. Unfortunately, neither man was clear on other important points such as the distinction between justification and sanctification. Now, I can't go on more than just this one slide or I would take up too much time, but I want to make it clear by showing this that from even before Ford's day, the idea, and he really propagated this, was that Jones and Wagner were way off in their message and that they not only didn't represent the Reformation truth, but they were bringing in air from the very beginning. In fact, he went on to say in one of his little articles or one of a pamphlet he put out, that the reproduction of Jones and Wagner's teachings from the 1800s was the Omega apostasy. And that's 180, I believe, from where it was at. Well, here's another, Robert Brimsmead. Of course, his pendulum, pendulum swung in his life um, from very um, ultra-conservative to joining with Ford there in the late 70s. This is what he said. At special periods in our history, the gospel has struggled to break through to the Advent community. The year 1888 marks such a period. Wagner had light on justification for the Adventist community, but better material on justification by faith could be found among Protestant scholars of his day. So again, this idea that really Jones and Wagner, what God sent in the 1880s, was not really new light. It was actually not even as good as what Protestants taught. 
biography put out in 1979. This was actually produced by um, Brimsmead's uh, group. And so it has his influence in it. This was written by David McMahon. He says, E.J. Wagner had not fully recovered the Protestant message of justification by faith by 1886. Much less had he recovered Paul's message of justification. If God used Wagner to bring light on the gospel to the church, then God was not shining the full blaze of even the imperfect Reformation light on the Adventist community. Those who compare Wagner's earlier gropings after the gospel with the clear doctrine of justification propounded by the best 19th century Protestant scholars will be startled. In other words, same idea that what Jones and Wagner presented that God sent in the 1880s was just really darkness compared to the light of Protestant scholars of their day. So this idea has come into our church since that time and still is propagated today. Here's another statement. The genius of Jones and Wagner's 1880 message was that they had combined the two halves of Revelation 1412. They had not only taught the commandments of God, but preached the doctrine of faith that the holiness preachers had proclaimed. And so here, um, this author suggests that really all that Jones and Wagner presented was just the concepts of the holiness preachers, meaning the Salvation Army preachers of the day, combine that with the Sabbath and so forth, and that the, this is just basic Christian belief. The two men had brought together the great truths of Adventism centering on the commandments of God and the great truths of evangelical Christianity centering on the salvation by faith in Jesus. In essence, Mrs. White was claiming that Seventh-day Adventists at last had a complete understanding of the third angel's message. That is, they had united the, uh, those aspects of Adventist theology that were distinctly Adventist to the great theme of justification by faith that Ellen White put it, as Ellen White put it, was being taught by the holiness preachers. The result was that Adventists since 1888 had finally been in a position to present the third angel's message in all of its fullness and balance. Now he's supposedly quoting from Ellen White, but he's misrepresenting what she said. She didn't say that Adventist message is a blending of evangelical holiness preaching extreme with law-keeping extreme, and that's the third angel's message. It, truth is much higher than that, and God has given us a truth that's far beyond. Now, I, I hope I didn't lose you all there, but that's one river of thought. Here's another river of thought. Kenneth Wood, same time period, uh, 1976, said this. In our opinion, the 1888 message was distinctive and included far more than Luther's gospel of justification by faith. It had a strong uh, eschatological emphasis. It was designed to prepare a people for translation at the second coming of Christ. It called attention to the heavenly sanctuary. It emphasized the humanity of Christ and declared Jesus to be not only our savior, but our example, one who lived the life of faith and showed us how to live that same kind of life. So here Kenneth Wood is saying, the message that God gave then, not only Jones Wagner, but to us as a people is much higher calling. Here's what Clinton Walleen says, he's on the BRI now. This is what he wrote back in 1988. He says, while E.J. Wagner accepted the fundamental principles of the Reformation, including justification by faith, and the Bible as the final authority for Christians, he viewed the third angel's message, which of course included his own teachings, 
as an advance beyond the days of the Reformation. So again, here Clint Whalen is saying that message is beyond. It, it builds on the Reformation, but it goes beyond the Reformation. Another statement he makes, uh, he says, in addition, attempts to trace E.J. Wagner's theology to Reformation figures like Luther is without tangible support because, and he was quoting from one of these other folks, where they're basically saying that really all that Jones and Wagner came with was a message just borrowed from uh, the Reformed doctrine. And actually, honestly, some of the teachings today uh, that are supposedly based on Luther and so forth are actually a rewrite in some degrees of what Luther taught in his day. Uh, another one, well, uh, Herbert Douglas wrote uh, quite often on this. He said, the profound uniting of law and grace was Ellen White's remarkable contribution to the 1888 crisis over salvation by faith. Further, her message clearly demonstrates that this precious, precious message was not a mere recovery of 16th century emphasis, nor a borrowing of 19th century Methodist descent, talking about the holiness preachers. In the 1880 emphasis, linkage was further made between the results of a personal application of salvation by faith and the closing work of Christ in the most holy place. So you, you see where he's going with this? The sanctuary and righteousness by faith go hand in hand, and that was not obviously taught in Luther's day. The 1888 revelation of the righteousness of Christ was only the beginning of the light of the angel whose glory shall fill the whole earth. The other rewrite, here's another statement that he makes, referring back to the 1950s, and Douglas was alive during those times, so he knows what took place. And this is what he writes here in his book, um, The Fork in the Road. The other rewrite has been the concurrent reluctance to review the theological detour that occurred since the 1950s when denominational publications and academic classrooms opined that the key contribution of the 1888 General Conference was to recognize that Adventists had finally recovered the so-called emphasis of those Protestant reformers regarding righteousness by faith. So again, he's saying, he's quoting from some of the other writers I uh, mentioned first. Nothing, he says, could be farther from the truth. This line of reasoning, wherever taught or preached, poisons any genuine study of that remarkable conference. Further, it has locked the door on what Ellen White called a most precious message, a message that would prepare people for translation. Someday, that door will be unlocked. So here, uh, Herbert Douglas is saying, the message that God has given to us as a church is not just rewritten Reformation theology. It is a full message of truth that is higher than extremes. And the last slide here, righteousness, this was uh, Robert Whelan and Short, who of course were alive during that time as well, and they wrote in this statement, righteousness by faith since 1844 is the third angel's message in verity. Thus it is greater than that what the reformers taught and the popular churches understand today. It is a message of abounding grace consistent with the unique Adventist truth of the cleansing of the sanctuary, a work contingent on the full cleansing of hearts of God's people on earth. So to close, I would just say that God does have a message that needs to go to the world. 
but we have to understand it, not only intellectually, but by experience. And that message at its core, even when we're talking about Sabbath and Sunday issues, is righteousness by faith. In fact, righteousness by faith, the Sabbath is a sign of that very teaching. And Sunday is a sign of man's attempts to save himself. So I don't know if you got anything out of this presentation, but I would encourage us all to study like we've never studied before on this topic because it is coming around again in our own church and in the world because of this focus on the Reformation 500 years. And the question is, is that Reformation over or is it alive and well in the Adventist church? Will you stand with me as we close? Father, we thank you for a most precious message that you have given us as a people in our heritage. And Lord, we ask that you will help us as we open your word day by day, that we will find that message there and we will find nothing else in the sense that it is the message that underlies every truth from Genesis to Revelation. The truth that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came to this earth to die for poor, wretched sinners like me. And Lord, I pray that then we would turn around and we would share the good news, what God can do with others as we come in contact in our businesses and in our work and in our families. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was produced by Audioverse for ASI. Adventist Layman's Services and Industries. If you would like to learn more about ASI, please visit www.asiministries.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.